Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Oh, there we go. Boosted. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. If you could turn down my channel just a little bit on the fader. I don't have enough hair for a fade, but I can be turned down on the fader. Hashtag dad jokes. All right. So this morning as we begin, we have a few announcements. Um, number one, let's see here. I'm going to scroll through all of them. Um, camp. There is a camp coming up in July. So for those of you that are interested, nobody's come and contacted me, but hopefully you're contacting the youth leaders. Um, there will be teen camp July 13th through the 16th. And then um, on the same day, the 16th, we'll pick up the youth. And if we have any young kids that would like to go, I think it's like first grade and up. I think we have a few kids coming. Um, and I think uh, I know that Lucy and Peyton are going probably. And so um, if there's interest in kids camp, it'll be the 16th through the 18th. And I know we'll have at least a couple of leaders there. And so if you need information or forms, please uh, talk to Rachel or Micah, uh, Beth or Drew or Tammy. Um, they, they know about camp. We know just enough to get ourselves in trouble with information with camp. Uh, but we do know that it's still scheduled to happen and it's going to be a blast. And so um, I'm excited to go this year, and I'm excited to see what God will do. Um, that said, um, also, I think the only other thing that I was thinking of is I've heard rumblings of a possible bonfire in the next couple of weeks. Did we ever set a date on that? We got in the paralysis of analysis. We talked about it, but we didn't pick a date. But that being said, if you follow our Instagram page, AVC underscore youth or something like that. Yeah, AV Chapel underscore youth underscore. And then we also have a Facebook page, AVC underscore youth. And um, in there, you'll see an announcement for it. And we'll send that email out to the church as well. So um, if you're interested in that, I think it'll be a good time. That being said, let's begin our study. In Revelation, we're going to we're going to attempt two chapters today. It's a big feat for me. But I think we can do it. So in Revelation, so far, as you've probably gotten tired of hearing me say, in chapter 1 and verse 19, we have the divinely inspired outline for the book. Uh, John is told by the Lord to write some things down. Take notes. Write the things which you have seen. Write the things which are now. And write the things that will take place soon after this, after these things in the Greek. And then after that, we have the book of Revelation kind of traveling in the same chronology. The things that he has seen, the things that he is seeing about what's going on right now, and the things that will happen after this. Which is interesting because I think we can overcomplicate the Bible if we're not careful. I think we can read into it things that it doesn't say. The Bible agrees with itself, and so the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And that being said, in chapter 1, we saw the things that he had seen. And in chapter 2 and 3, we saw the things that were at his time. These seven churches, he wrote seven letters to them to instruct them specifically about things that they were dealing with and would. And then in chapter 4, we see chapter 4 and 5 where that the church, the people of God, the people that are following Jesus Christ have been taken up. They've been raptured. They've been 
enraptured, if you will, and taken into the heavenly throne room, which the earthly tabernacle was always a type of the heavenly throne room, the heavenly reality. And so we saw in there the presence of the Lord, and we saw all of the furnishings and all of their fulfillment. And then in chapter 6, suddenly we enter into this time called the Great Tribulation Period. And during this period, what we saw was in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that, that there's this picture that God's people that trust in Him are not appointed to wrath, but we've been appointed or chosen for salvation. And this salvation we talk about isn't just like a word that doesn't actually mean salvation. It means that we have been delivered. We've been snatched away from death. We've been taken away from the brutal reality, the consequences of sin in this life, and so that even the things that can plague us and kill us in this life, that death doesn't get the final word. And so in chapter 6, we see uh, all of a sudden there's this picture of this, this title deed to the earth that was taken from Adam and Eve. Satan deceived them and got it from them. And then this title deed is up for grabs once again. It's able to be redeemed, and John looks around heaven, on earth, in the sky, everywhere, and he weeps because no one is there to take the scroll. No one's there to loose the seals upon it and to redeem the earth, to buy it back from sin. And so because of that, because of that brokenness, then it's at that spot where John looks up and he sees a lamb as though it had been slain for the sins of the world who had paid the price and was able to loose the seals. And as he loosed the seals, judgment is unleashed on the earth. He's, he's going to shake up the nation of Israel. He's going to make up the world for the kingdom. He's going to clean it. He's going to cleanse it. He's going to purify it. And then as we see, he's been continuing to judge the world and to show it what it's like. Okay, you don't want to trust me. You don't want me to be in charge. Here's what it looks like when you're not under my protection. Here's what it looks like when I let go of creation. Here's what it looks like when you choose rebellion instead of following and trusting me. And as we've seen that, we've seen hell unleashed on earth. In chapter 7, there was 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, Jewish evangelists, who were unleashed on an ungodly world, a rebellious world with no Christians. And out of that comes innumerable people from around the globe that are coming into the throne of the Lamb, they have robes of righteousness. They've believed the gospel. So even in the tribulation, we think, man, look at all this judgment. And yet God is still reaching out his hand to whosoever will may come. Whosoever will. And as he does this, we see that it gets harder and harder to live as a believer because in chapter 8, we see the seventh seal unleashed and as he unleashes this, as he, he looses this seventh seal, then it, on top of that, releases seven trumpet judgments. And last week, we looked at the first four. But if you'll remember, after the first four, one was the vegetation on the earth was struck. For you meat eaters, you're like, that's fine. I don't care about that. I don't want any more veggies. But then uh, all of the grass is burned up. So you meat eaters, what your meat eats, it's gone. So there's no meat. There's all of a sudden there's going to be a, a famine in the world because the vegetation is struck. And then the second trumpet, the seas are struck. And we talked about how the 
this could have played out in a practical, physical world. But the reality is, is that a third of the sea all of a sudden is blood, just like in the plagues in Moses' day towards Pharaoh, the Nile was turned into blood. And then a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed on the sea. Now, in 2011, there was about 30,000 ships on the, sh on the sea at any given time, which means a third of them would be 10,000 ships destroyed in the sea. That's pretty uh, devastating to uh, trade and cargo and, and military. And, but that being said, the third trumpet was the, the waters were struck. Not, not the sea, not the seawater, not the saline water, but the fresh water, the water from the earth, the springs of the earth. And then after that, the heavens were struck. So all these common graces, if you believe in God, these things are afforded to you. Sunlight, stars, the moon, the earth, vegetation, all of these things, the sea, fresh water. But if you reject Christ, guess what? Right now, we live in a day of grace. You get to receive the fruit of all those things. And yet in the great tribulation, as God lets go and says, fine, you don't need me, that's fine. I'm going to take myself away from you slowly. What happens is those common graces start to get struck. The things that we tend to worship, the creature rather than the creator, the creation rather than the creator. I'm like you guys. When the sun's out, I'm happy. It makes me feel good. And yet what happens if the sun goes away? Please don't take my sunshine away. Uh, what if God does? Is that a very cute yet possibly rebellious song? You know, trusting in the sun and what it offers rather than trusting in the sun, S-O-N. That's a preacher joke, right? So then what happens is as he looses these seals and as these trumpets blow forth and the heavens are struck and then the sun and the moon and the days are shortened and we talked about how that might be a possible fallout from nuclear explosions. Then we go to some judgments that are a little bit more supernatural than just earth and the common graces being struck. And in chapter 9, he continues on, and there's this crazy judgment where the key is given to the bottomless pit, and then out of the bottomless pit calls these locusts. And we're going to describe those in a minute. But before we get there, since on Mother's Day, I spent all kinds of time talking about judgment, everyone's favorite subject, let's talk about what God has done so that we don't have to experience judgment. A few thoughts on judgment, lest we get weary with judgment. Turn with me to John chapter 3 and verse 16. I'm going to get out my idle phone so I can read to you the New Living Translation. Hopefully. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but instead have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. Verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. No judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged, or your translation might say condemned. 
Who is it that condemns other than a judge? And so, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. Here's the reason that all of mankind can be righteously judged. Because God's light, Jesus Christ, came into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light. We fashion things and we've come up with things and we worship things other than him. That's the condemnation. So if anyone goes to hell, whose fault is it? It's their own. God is doing everything within his power without forcing us to bow the knee for our own good. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. Verse 20, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear, fear, that has a new connotation lately, right? Everyone, all who do evil hate the light and they refuse to go near it because they're afraid their sins will be exposed. They will not go to the light. So if you have people in your life that are like, I don't want Jesus because of what it might cost me. It's because they're afraid that they'll be exposed for who they really are. That's why. All the other excuses in the world can be there, but this one is really the only root cause. They're afraid their deeds will be exposed. But Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth sets you free. Fear keeps you in bondage. Truth sets you free. And when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And so that being said, a few thoughts on judgment is that God so loved us that he gave Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but instead have everlasting life. Whoever rejects him will perish. They're already going to. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but that an unbelieving world is already condemned. God sent Jesus to save. He who does not believe in Jesus Christ is already condemned, so God sent him. The problem is that man loves darkness instead of Jesus Christ. Lovers of darkness avoid Jesus at all costs, lest their deeds be exposed. But to the believer, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have no condemnation don't walk in the flesh, but they walk in the Spirit, trusting Him. And so all of that to say, let's talk about judgments more. <laughs> We've not been appointed to wrath. There's a solution for going through the tribulation. None of us have to worry about that. Unless, of course, you're rejecting Jesus Christ. And so in John, excuse me, Revelation chapter 9, the fifth angel sounded. And if you remember in verse 13 of chapter 8, John is our, the, the angel looked, excuse me, John looked, and he heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, like a town crier, Whoa! 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 Three times to the inhabitants of the earth at this time, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. You think that the first four were intense. Wait till the next three. So then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star 
fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. Smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. To them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these are intelligent creatures. Because if you think about what locusts do, and I just Google searched it the other day, locusts are actually, they're experiencing a plague of locusts unlike any other time in Africa right now. And I'm trying to think of the name of the country now. But it was on the news, and CNN covered it, and other places. Uh, we think that we have the worst problems here right now because of what we got going on. But the reality is the world has that going on. And because the locusts are so thick, and because of coronavirus, they're not able to send people out to spray for locusts. And so because of that, people's sheep and goat herds don't have anything to eat. But all of that to say that locusts, their main thing that they do is they devour green things. They eat trees. They eat grass. And what's the one thing he said that he wouldn't allow them to do? They were given powers of scorpions, but they were not allowed. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're coming to devour they're coming to torment. But what we're going to find out is they're not going to be allowed to kill. So think about the plagues in Egypt. A lot of people are going, man, in the Old Testament, that God, he was just so vengeful, full of wrath. He's unkind. He's judgmental. Now he's meek and mild in the New Testament. Well, here we are in the New Testament reading what he's allowing. But what I want to point out is that if God was only wrathful, if God was impatient, what do you think would happen? Do you think he would take all this time to judge humanity? Or do you think he would go, they go, he doesn't. He's slow to wrath. He's not willing that any should perish. His long suffering is his patience. It's not him condoning what we do. A lot of people mistake God's patience for him being okay with our sin. Hey, God allowed it. That's a hunk of bull. If he allowed it, it's because he wants you to be safe still. Because God loves his enemies. It's not because he's okay with it. Our sin hurts him, it hurts us, and it hurts others. God's not okay with that. Think about the first time. You, those of you that have kids, those of you that have family, somebody starts messing with your family, what do you do? You get all up in arms. You get defensive. God's defensive. He's not just going, oh, well, he, he's upset about it, but he's measured in the way he judges because he's not willing that we perish. It's not his desire to consume us in fire. It's his desire to redeem us to himself. And so as he's taking time to unleash these judgments one by one, each one of it is another cry to go, you need me. You need me. And so in verse 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass, 
But then in verse 5, they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now in verse 5, they were not given authority to kill them. And the them is those who were not sealed. Who are the sealed that he's talking about? Chapter 7, the 144,000. And yet those that were not sealed, these scorpions or these locusts with scorpion powers are able to go and torment and they have the power to torment with the torment that uh, scorpions have when they strike a man. So I googled that and the Mayo Clinic says that torment like a scorpion looks like this. Intense pain, numbness, swelling, difficulty breathing, muscle twitching, head, neck, and eye movement rapidly, drooling, sweating, nausea and vomiting, high blood pressure, accelerated heart rate, restlessness, inconsolable crying in children. Now, this is a random thought, so forgive me, this is my brain. You ever watch those commercials where they're like, we got the fix to your pain? And then they got all these, you know, wonderful videos of people skipping through the breeze. And then they're, the whole time they're listing these things. Uh, your arm will feel better, but you will have sweating, nausea, vomiting, high blood pressure, and your arm might fall off. You know, like, uh, I think I'll just go with the pain. Uh, but here's the reality. What he's saying here is, hey, no problem. You don't have to follow me. You don't have to accept my son. But here's the consequences. And there's no video in the background with wonderful scenes. There's nausea, vomiting, intense pain, numbness, swelling, difficulty breathing. I'll take the sun, please. I'll take Jesus. Why would you want any of this? And yet I don't think that people start their lives saying, I would like to burn in hell. I think what happens is that people don't realize they're on the pathway to hell. Nobody warns them. Revelation 10. And then, and, and then because no one warns them and they're not willing to come to the sun over and over and over again, they don't experience his grace. And so because of that, uh, this trumpet judgment, not only are these locusts released, but then at the same time, as they're released, they're given power to torment. And it says there in verse five, when they're given torment, it's for five months. Their torment was the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will want to die and death will flee from them. So God supernaturally is not going to allow suicide, but men will want it. It will be that intense. And so the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. I have a picture for you. It's kind of creepy. They were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of um, something like gold, and their faces were like faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. So my point is, is that this description is more than just a description of these locusts. It actually is describing demons. And demons don't have to wait to be released. Demons will actually have these, they already have these characteristics. And so as they're waiting to be, as they're being released, 
On their heads were something like crowns, not gold, but something like it. Their faces were like the faces of men. They're reasonable. They can reason. They're able to be directed. Um, They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They're like their master. Satan is like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And I believe that this is symbolic for their heart condition. They do not care. They do not care about anybody or anything except for themselves. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months, and they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is he- in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So these are devouring creatures that are told, don't devour, only sting and torment. Uh, they are innumerable. They are indestructible. They won't go away. Raid will not get them. They're ordered to torment, but not kill. And I think some of them will wish they, they would just kill them. They have the power to hurt men for five months. And they are led by the king of the bottomless pit. He's named Apollyon, and he's named Abaddon. In the Hebrew, Abaddon means destruction. Apollyon means destroyer. Uh, And he's the angel of the bottomless pit, and he's the king over these locusts. Now, if you read Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27, uh, Solomon says there's a great mystery. Locusts have no king, and yet they kind of work together as as a horde. And yet this particular locust horde has a king, and he is Satan. His name is Destruction and Destroyer. And in John chapter 8, verse 44, it says that Satan is the father of lies, and he desires to destroy with lies. In John chapter 10, that's where I'm going to go, Jesus is speaking to his disciples John 10, verse 7, and he speaks about being a shepherd. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I'm the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. However, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So interestingly enough, he says there, I'm the door. And he says, all who ever came before me, all who enter in and try to lead people are thieves and robbers. But notice this, the sheep didn't notice them come in. The sheep did not hear them. People joke about Satan and the devil if he's not real. He doesn't exist. I can't see him, therefore he's not there. But the problem is, is that he's still at work whether or not you believe in him. 
You don't have to believe in him. You can see what he's doing. You can see him causing war and destruction and problems. And so Jesus warns his sheep about Satan. And in this case, Satan is controlling these locusts. And um, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So the sixth trumpet. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying, the sixth angel who had the trumpet, excuse me, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound, they're chained at the great river Euphrates. I truly believe that things would be way worse if God allowed all of the demons to do what they do. These particular angels seem to have been chained at the great river Euphrates. Now, Euphrates is one of the major rivers we see in the beginning of Genesis from the cradle of creation. There were several rivers coming from one location. But now, this is also a river in Old Testament, Testament history where Euphrates, the Euphrates River would actually go out of the city of Babylon, and through it. And so from this place, the river Euphrates, it's also a river that ran through ancient Babylon, which was the center for, and is still the center for, and from which most satanic cults and religions flow from. I believe it's because of these four angels. They were chained there, but they're still able to do things. And yet what we see is that their main cause here is to um, kill a third of mankind. Now, I enjoy numbers, okay? So, as we began Revelation, we looked at um, the fact that in seal 2 through 4 of chapter 6, 25% of creation, 25% of mankind was wiped out. And in 2018, the, the world population was 7.6 billion people. So 25% of that wiped out in chapter 6. Other events have also killed people in their wake. No doubt the famines and the pestilence in the sea and the wormwood, the bitter water. But then in chapter 8, these, uh, excuse me, here in chapter 9, these four angels with what's left after those plagues would kill about 1.8 billion people in one setting. 1.8 it's a lot of people. But their main purpose, he tells them, kill one-third of mankind. And before that, we see this ungodly killing. So my point is, and I, I keep noticing this fraction, one-third, 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 and all of these trumpet judgments. And this is just something to think about. Do you think it's because they've rejected one-third of the Trinity? Do you think it's because they've rejected the Son? That one-third, not coincidentally, is being taken away. Take, take away one-third of the Trinity, and you only have two-thirds of what God's given us. And so, just a devotional thought. But they were bound near this river Euphrates, and then notice, all of a sudden, almost as if it, there's ADD in the writer, verse 15 says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
And the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. What army? What horsemen? I don't, I don't ever see them introduce this army. So I believe that these four angels are actually legionnaires or some sort of leader in this military. And they are the demonic forces behind this 200 million person army. Now think about it. John's writing this down as he's having it revealed to him. In John's day in 90 AD, there were not 200 million people on earth. Zero. There was not that many people. It wasn't possible. And so we have this 200 million people army and the horsemen. And he, he says, I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on the horses had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. Now think about John. He's in 90 AD. He's seeing these things, and he's describing them with words he would know. When he describes the, the, the wings of the, the locusts, he describes them as the wheels of chariots. When he, when he sees these horses go out with the people riding them that are not people, they're kind of, to me, they look like uh, He-Man riding on tigers. I have the picture there for you. Maybe some of you don't know who He-Man was. But all that to say that he's describing it in a way that he would know how to describe it. And, and I would submit to you that this is a possible description of modern-day tanks, modern-day war instruments. Out of the front of them come fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now, if you've never seen a lead bullet or a mortar or something like that, what would you describe it as? He's describing it as brimstone, which is molten rock flying forth. And then he says smoke and fire and brimstone. By these plagues, these three plagues, he says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. But he says in verse 19, their power is in their mouth and in their tails. Is that one of those tanks that shoots forward and then spins around and shoots backwards? I, I don't know. But it seems to me that the description he's giving could be something that we have now. Tanks and these ballistic missiles and these trailers behind them that also have tanks and they have uh, cannons or things that are cannon-like. But as he describes them, what I want to point out is how we ended last week in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Why didn't they repent? Because their deeds were evil. Why didn't they come to the Son? John chapter 3 says, 
because they were afraid their unrighteous deeds, that their sins would be exposed. They would rather take cannon fire than repent and humble themselves. That's the hardness of men's hearts. And so he says, because of that, they wouldn't repent of their specific sins, the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They continued on as they always had. I ain't stopping no matter who tells me. So chapter 10. But before we get there, where do wars come from? Where do wars come from? Do they come from nations? Do they come from United Nations? Do they come from the media? Do they come from, like, where does war come from? But if you turn with me to James, in chapter 4, James was way ahead of us. He knew. He knows. Inspired by the Spirit, James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? that war in your members. Do they not come? He says, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. These nations are going to want other territories. I would submit to you that Revelation 16, verse 12, that talks about the army of Armageddon, the valley of Armageddon, that this 200 million will be a army that's been placed together, not for the sake of religious reasons, but to conquer kingdoms and to take over the world. And they'll do it demonically inspired. And as they do it demonically inspired, they're ultimately going to fulfill the will of God in doing so, in destroying the earth. But war begins in individual hearts. War starts because someone desires pleasure. War starts because someone desires power. War starts because someone desires that piece of land over there. We lust for more. We covet what isn't ours. And yet we prey on other nations. We prey on people. We prey on people's stuff. And yet he says, you do not have in James 4 because you do not ask. You can either pray on people or you can pray for the stuff you need. P-R-E-Y or P-R-A-Y. And the reality is mankind without Jesus, we P-R-E-Y on others. So warring ends when we pray instead of pray. Now don't hold your breath uh, for this is going to happen in this world. They're not warring with each other. They're warring against God. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers of the darkness of this age. And Satan would have nothing more than for us to rage against one another rather than humbly submit ourselves to the Son. But the rest who are killed are not killed, still few, refuse to repent. And so in Jan, uh, Revelation chapter 10, 
as we finish up today. There's going to be a lot here, but I want to go over it because I don't want to stop with judgment. I want to stop by talking about the solution for judgment. John, or Revelation chapter 10 says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. You can imagine all these angels. He keeps seeing these angels of death pass over. And can you imagine just the, how anxious his stomach would get? Oh gosh, another one. Oh gosh, another one. He's watching the carnage. Have you ever watched a war movie in like uh, one of those IMAX movie theaters? Like when you're watching a movie and there's carnage going on and there's all these problems, it's like it's easy to detach yourself and go, okay, it's too much, I'm going to another room. But if you've ever watched an intense movie where destruction's happening and it's very real, maybe Saving Private Ryan or something, and you watch it in an IMAX, you can feel the distress. You can feel the anxiety. You can feel the fear of death. And I believe that John is getting this in better than IMAX. It's 3D, it's 4K, it's whatever. And as he sees this angel, I don't think that he's thinking, oh, a deliverer. I think he's thinking another judgment. But that's all for just my thoughts as I've been pondering this passage. He sees another strong angel, a mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, if you look at this description, hopefully you're hearkening back to Revelation chapter 1, where John describes Jesus in his glorified state, feet like fire, his face shone brightly like the sun. Maybe you're thinking to the Mount of Transfiguration, where he, he was so white and so much glory coming forth from him that it was whiter than any human launderer could get it. But as we see this description, we see the, the rainbow on his head, a sign of his covenant, his face like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his foot on the sea. Who else do we know that can walk on water? Jesus. This is a telltale sign. This is Jesus Christ we're looking at. It's not an angel. He's Jesus. And his other foot is on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. He roars like a lion. Did we see anything like that this morning? Our God is a, a, a roaring lion. He's the lion and the lamb. And yet when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Remember the heavenly scene. Thunderings and lightnings proceeding forth from the throne. And I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Did you know that God sometimes will speak something specifically to you? And then he'll say, that's not for anybody else. That's just for you. And it's not something that he's hiding from other people. I've done that before on this stool. I've shared things that I thought, man, this is awesome. And then I share it with everybody and everybody's like, okay, whatever. It wasn't for them. And that's okay. God specifically knows you. He specifically knows things that you need to hear. And when he tells them to you, sometimes they're just for you. There are things that I tell my wife, they're just for her. There are things that she tells me, they're just for me. They're not for anybody else's ears. 
And so in this case, the, the voice tells John, uh, seal that up, keep it to yourself. Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. You ever think about the woman that was caught in the act of adultery and Jesus writes in the sand something specific? You ever wonder why the writers of the gospel account didn't tell you what it said? I wonder if it was one of those moments where the God of creation is saying something only for her. And then perhaps the guys that were there, like he did the men in black, like, boop, and then you forget it. Like nobody else gets to know. He seals it. I don't know. But, but all that to say that God speaks things specifically to his children. Do you know that he knows you as an individual? No doubt. He knows us as, as the bride of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I want to encourage you guys today. He knows you. Each one of you, he has specific purposes and things he's speaking into your life. And, and he wants you to know them whether it's in the cool of the morning or at, or at nighttime when you're just dry and you need refilling. Spend time with him. Let him speak those things. And then don't post them on Facebook. Keep them for yourself. Enjoy them. Enjoy the, their words of life. And then the angel who's, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be done, finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Second Peter chapter three and verse nine. Peter writes, The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long suffering towards us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements, elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's not willing that any should perish. And he's being patient. He, the word patient is the word long-suffering. And if you've had to be patient with somebody enough times, it feels like suffering. God is suffering long with us. He is giving us all the time we need to repent. He's giving us all the time we need to get our houses in order. And yet many times we count his long suffering as his laziness to make things right again. And yet consider the long suffering and the patience of the Lord as the opportunity for one more, 
one more family, one more household, one more individual. Can you imagine what would happen if Jesus came back 10 years ago for some of us? Or 20 years ago? Or 30 years ago? I'm thankful that he didn't come back then. Because that means I would have not had any opportunity to repent of my sin and become his. And so I'm thankful that he's patient. And at the same time, I'm thankful that he's going to come again and set things right. Here he says that the things that are in it, the things that are in the world, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel. In other words, it's about to happen. When he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets, that there would be a day where God says, enough, it's over, no more grace. You've had plenty of time. And at that point, he's going to set up his kingdom. But then the voice, verse 8, we're closing. The voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Now remember, he's been releasing the seals to the title deed of the earth. It's now an open title deed. And he gives it to John. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. In my Facebook memories, I was at Kathy's house last year. She's got the tiniest Bible ever. And this is what I envision in my mind, this little book. And you open it up. It's not even really legible. I'm sorry. Anyway. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. It'll be, so it has to be a small book, right? Otherwise, we can't get it in our mouth. It's going to be bite-sized. But he says, take and eat it. And he says something very odd. Why would you tell anybody to eat something that's going to be bitter? Like, that seems like the worst eating challenge ever. Bitterness sticks in your mouth. I mean, it goes there. But he doesn't say it's bitter in your mouth. He says it's bitter for your stomach. So he says, eat this. It's going to be sweet to your lips. Taste and see, the psalmist wrote, that the Lord is good. Your word is like honey on my lips. Your spirit's like water to my soul. But then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, I'll stop there. He eats it, it's sweet in his mouth, but when it gets to his stomach, it's bitter. It, it causes a rumbling. It, bitterness, wormwood, epicac. Think about it. It's, it's poisonous, and we take epicac to get poison out of our body. So what's the cure for this spiritual indigestion of eating the word of God? Think about it. The word of God to those who believe and have received the gospel, it's this sweet, wonderful, like such good news. But to those who are perishing, it's like vomit. It's stench. It's, it's horrible. It's like that's the worst thing I've ever heard. But when we eat the word of God and we're saved by the gospel, there's also this bitter sweetness to it because we recognize we've been saved and yet we're surrounded by family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors that are lost. And if the good news is true, then it means there's also bad news. The good news says I'm saved. The bad news is that anyone that doesn't believe in the son is already condemned and they're not partakers yet. So what's the cure for spiritual indigestion? Verse 11 says, 
He said to me, who had the bitterness in my stomach, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. The application is that you take that bitter word that's made your stomach bitter and you throw it up. Get it out. That doesn't mean you don't receive it. That means you receive it yourself. It gives you nourishment and then you pass it out. Freely you've received, now go and freely give. Paul said, woe unto me if I do not preach the good news. And so the, the book of Revelation to me is, is odd because it's, it's more evangelistic than any other book that I've studied so far. Even the book of Acts, it's just like he's going and sharing the gospel. But then in Revelation, there's this desperation. We're going to be judged. We need to be saved, not only spiritually, but physically from the wrath of the Lamb to come. And so all of that said, we have the antidote. We know that there's judgment coming, but we also know the Savior. We know that there is salvation to be had for whosoever will believe. And so the question is, do you believe it? Are you going to walk in it? And are you willing to share it? Because if you share it, the bitterness goes away and the joy comes. As believers, you can receive the word, you can glut yourself on it, but if you're not careful, you become glutted. If you've ever been glutted on food, like it's great until it's not great, and then you're walking around the house going, oh, I ate way too much. And I think a lot of Christians are glutted with the word of God. They have no joy because they haven't taken that word and shared it. And there's a lot of joy that comes from seeing the effects of the word of God and the lives of those who without it will perish in your lives. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for revealing to us the sobriety that comes from judgment. But we also are grateful for the word of God that is sweetness to our, our mouths, that tastes like sweet honey. And we're grateful that in some ways it gives us a brokenness and a bitterness to our soul that helps us to long for heaven and helps us to stop trying to live here as if it is heaven. It causes us to look beyond ourselves, beyond this world, to the world and the life and the kingdom that is to come. So Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the people that need you. Thank you for the lips and the voices and the knowledge to just, if nothing else, to go share we think oftentimes that the things that we share with people, even our own experiences or our own witnesses, something that, that's hindered because we don't know the verse or the chapter. But the reality is, Lord, this week you've been showing me that if we'll just share what Jesus has done for us, people will be pricked in their hearts. I just want to pray for my neighbor right now who was asking my wife this week, your husband said something about salvation. What's that mean? Lord, help me to to get off my, my duff and go share with them. The only name under heaven given among men by which all men must be saved. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.